Hello. Yeah. Um, this is Gareth of Alpha. Uh, no, hey, these start by me saying hi and welcome to Alpha Pod Flight, a podcast where uh, we talk about Alpha Flight stuff. Um, I don't know if you can tell from my voice, but I've not been very well this week, so I haven't actually recorded an episode. Um, former a previous guest Ken Reynolds was going to come on and do an episode, but um, I had to call it off because I couldn't breathe or talk. So instead, we've got something different this week. Uh, listener and friend of the show, Dave Cambrian, at the Horseman on Twitter, went to uh, Canada Fan Expo, I think that's what it's called, and he recorded surreptitiously, I think, a a panel that John Byrne did. There's some Alpha Flight stuff in there. There's some other stuff. It's all interesting. Um, I had no idea about the legality of recording panels and put them on uh, podcasts. If it is illegal, then next week's episode will be from jail for Dave Cameron, not me. I'll dob him in straight off. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm just going to edit this in. There's a little break because of the recording, uh, but most of it's there. Okay, and uh, hopefully next time we'll have a proper episode. I'm currently stood in the car park with my phone up against my head pretending I'm doing a phone call, but I'm not. I'm recording this podcast. I'm like a spy. Like a cool, cool spy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, bye. Have a nice time listening to John Byrne. Be grumpy about everything. See ya. First time, so like, uh, with North Star, his sexuality... Uh, Roger Box being a paraplegic, uh, uh, an indigenous character. What? Why? Can you talk about that? What? What was the inspiration? Why were they all different? Well, when I think when I think of Marvel, I think of it being the, the kind of the oddball guys who become the superheroes back in, in the day. You know, Peter Parker who's the nerdy kid, and Don Blake who's the and we use the word cripple these days. I don't think we're differently abled guy. Um, and, you know, just in general, I mean, the Fantastic Four were just straight up normal people to get superpowers. And I wanted Alpha Flight to be different. I already created Guardian. I created Guardian in my fan base, so he was, you know, Mr. Squirter Jaw, Mr. Big Chest. Uh, but I wanted the others, like, Puck and, uh, Roger Box and, and one or two of the others to just be different, you know, and, and just say, look, you can be different and you can be a superhero. You can have no legs and you can be a superhero. So why not? Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, with all your extensive work at Marvel and DC, are there any characters you would have liked to have? Like- Oh, how do I build a page, basically, yeah. Um, back in the day, when I, when I was just starting out, before I really got into the business, and I heard artists did thumbnails and then layouts and da da da. So I would do thumbnails, and then I would, I didn't have an autograph, so I'd blow them up in my mind, and put them on the page and do layouts, and then I'd do finished pencils, and then I'd ink it. <laughs> I said, I'm drawing this page like four or five times. What am I doing here? So I started doing my thumbnails full size on the page. Um, so the first thing, I lay out 
the panel shapes. And then I draw the perspective grid for those panels that need perspective grids. And then I draw the figures on the perspective grid. And then I do the backgrounds around the figure. So, you know, always, always telling myself to leave the top third of the panel not empty, but unimportant. So you can cover the copy. When you were doing books like Superman or Fantastic Four, how much did you write for yourself versus just sort of jumping in and drawing? Oh, mostly, yeah. When I'm writing for myself, I mostly start with the art. Uh, uh, this this X-Men thing that I deny. Uh, you know, I just started drawing it one day, and I drew a page, and I drew another page, and I drew another. And, and the other day, I, I, you know, it's now got more than 20 pages. I don't know why. Um, and I realized I hadn't started scripting it seriously yet. I thought, oh, that's going to be a lot of scripting and ballooning and all that stuff. So it, it's, well, the Star Trek book was, was interesting, too, because, you know, that was building out of existing pictures. So I would do that, and then I would script it as I went along. So each page was scripted as I went, and then I'd get to page 14 and realize, oh, I've got to change what I wrote on page on page 12 because it doesn't fit. And that's the, the wonder that is Photoshop. You know, I love the wonder that is Photoshop. And I'm even getting some use with this non-existent X-Men book um, because if it was ever real and if it was ever inked, uh, it would be done, it would be inked on blue line. Do you know what that is? Yeah. You know, where the art is reproduced in blue, a non-reproducible non blue. And I realized that means I'm never sending the pencils in. Which gives me the opportunity to use Photoshop, like the story you've seen online, it has a lot of jungle in it. And I, I looked at it, well, I didn't do very well with this jungle right here. But it did much better 10 pages later. So I'm gonna <laughs> clone that over here and flop it. You know. And then when the anchor inks it, it won't look the same. Uh, so, I've never used Photoshop on pencils before. It's really a kind of an interesting experience. I actually transplanted, in, on one page, I transplanted Nightcrawler's face. I took a big face and put it on a smaller figure in another panel, because it worked better. Cool. Uh, oh yeah, this is great. Someday I won't have to draw anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yasha. Hi. Um, what was your favorite uh, comic project and why? Favorite comic project? Well, that's a that's a broad spectrum because I was uh, I derived pleasure from most, though not all, of the things I did. Um, I think my best work, just my technically best work, is OMAC. Um, the thing I probably had the most fun with, though, was Batman and Captain America. Although that. I want to go back and re-ink that. <laughs> I'm going through a thing with my inks. Now I look at it and go, oh no, I, oh. I'm going to turn into George Lucas. <laughs> Are you able to, say today, recall a style of your inking from a different era? Well, I'm aware of it, yes. And uh, there was one commission piece that somebody asked me to do a Hulk figure in the style that it was originally done. And it scared the jeebers out of me doing it because I thought, oh God, what if I stick? You know, what if I'm drawing like 1977 and I can't stop drawing like it's 1977, but it's, I've, I've gone, 
confused. It's a pretty strange request. You're all like the guy you used to be. You're like the guy I used to be, yeah. It's odd. Somebody online, you know, talking about the being non-existent X-Men books. Get Terry to get here, but get him and get like a given. Terry will appreciate it. No, yeah. So what what point in your career do you feel like you were most comfortable doing your own pencils and inks? Not yet. Wow. No, I, I, I always hope that day is coming. But, uh, yeah, time. Well, I talked about it online, where every once in a while, I'll finish a page and I'll kind of say, damn, I'm good. And I, and I call these my damn, I'm good days, because they don't happen very often. You know, if it happened a lot, I'd call it Tuesday. <laughs> but I say, every once in a while, I can kind of sit back and say, oh, I think I understand what the people like, because here it is. And it's usually some goofy thing that has some minor element that doesn't really want to, not an exploding planet. I, I talked years ago, there was a shot in uh, Next Men where Jasmine, you know, we're realizing that she's pregnant and she's in the, the ladies' room throwing up. And I get a uh, thing, and the hand was the most perfect hand I've ever drawn, you know, and I thought, it was one of those moments where I, I should just stop now. <laughs> you know, because it's never going to get any better than this. Yes, next. All right. How long does it take me to do a page? How do I structure my day? Well, back in the day when I was doing Fantastic Four and uh, Alpha Flight at the same time, I was doing three pages a day of pencil or pencil things. And each page took about two hours. Now, how many of you have seen the non-existent X-Men book online? Okay. Go look at it, the rest of you, on my portfolio, my, my forum. Because those pages have been coming out of my pencil at the rate of one per hour. What? Which blows my mind. Don't tell Marvel that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weekly comic. Yeah. It never becomes a comic. There's no announcement here. There's no And even I'm boggled by that. I mean, I would sit there and draw like I normally do. Ah, that's, that's nice. Look at the clock. Oh, that took an hour. You know. Now, I have said that I think it's because a lot of the panels are full of what I call Zen jungle, which is where you just I was drawing cityscapes and strange spaceships and things like that, it would probably take longer. Uh, but uh, my average speed is two hours for full pencils or two hours for pencils and inks because I don't do finished pencils when I ink myself. Which is one of the reasons I did this particular X-Men thing uh, in full pencils because I hadn't done that in so long. I wanted to see if I could still do it. Yeah. Sir. Hi. I was wondering for the Alpha Flight characters, were they based on people that you knew? Like, like, how did you come up with all the personalities? Well, there was only one character in Alpha Flight uh, <laughs> who was a real person, and that was Gary Cody, who ran Department S, and he's sitting right here. Stand up, please.
<laughs> he looks a little older than he did 38 years ago. But, uh, but the rest of them, no, were just uh, people who popped into my head. I think I'd say Guardian was a fan character. I created Guardian sometime around uh, 1972, 73. And then the rest of them, really, I created, I designed simply to survive a fight with the X-Men. And then they turned out to be hugely popular, and Marvel wanted to give them their own book, and I resisted it for a long time. And then when I finally relented and said, all right, we'll, we'll do their own book, and I sat down and said, who the hell are these people? <laughs> they have to have personalities. And that's why I have often said that North Star was gay from day two. Because <laughs> he wasn't gay when I created him, but he was gay when I needed something to make him three-dimensional. And then, of course, Jim Shooter said, yeah, you can make him gay, but you can't say it in a book. <laughs> but I seem to have managed to get the message across somehow. Yeah. So when you left the book um, and you did the whole Hulk switch, was that your choice? Had you gone as yeah. far as you wanted? Yeah. I, 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 see, <clears throat> Alpha Flight was never real to me because it wasn't created by Stan and Jack or you know, Stan and Steve. These were just yeah, stupid fan characters. Who cares? Um, and I tried to make them real in my own mind, but uh, the only real characters were the ones that I read as a kid. So I went to Bill Matlow one day and said, you want, want to trade? And, and he did, and then he did some odd things. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> Shooter had what had, has, what I call the whim of iron. Uh, it almost seemed literally like he'd come in on Monday morning with a new idea, and we all had to follow it until he forgot it the next week because he had another new idea. Um, I mean, one of the main reasons Roger Stern and I uh, quit Captain America was because Shooter came in one day and said, everything has to be one-issue stories. And we said, okay, you know, we're just starting a three-parter, but as soon as we're done, we'll do one of your stories. And he said, no, now. I said, well, I've drawn six pages of this first issue. We can't fit the next, you know, three issues into what's left of the book. So we got huffy and quit. Uh, and that was in the days when the fans still supported me when I quit. <laughs> he must have done it for a good reason. I said, I'll burn every last morning eight issues. So then Fantastic Four, because you came on just about at the 20th anniversary. Five issues before. Yeah, and then you left right before the 25th anniversary. Which wasn't really my intent. Was that, yeah, what was what was the industry there? Well, I was having fun working on the Fantastic Four. I was looking for a bit of a break. And I was, I'd been talking to John Romita Jr. about drawing it um, while I wrote it. And we were kind of cruising towards that. I think that would have been fun. And then I accepted the Superman gig. And in my innocence, I assumed I would do Superman and the Fantastic Four. But as soon as Shooter found out about Superman, suddenly nothing I was doing on the Fantastic Four was any good. It had to keep getting changed, it had to do this, it had to do that. And I said to Mike Carlin, uh, who was my editor then, I said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just leave. You shouldn't have to put up with this shit just because I'm going to go do Superman. 
Now, Mike Hobson, who was the publisher at Marvel in those days, uh, he congratulated me and said on Superman, he said, anything that's good for DC will be good for Marvel, and will be good for the whole industry. Not Shooter. Um, so I left, and then Shooter fired Carlin because it was his fault. I, I left. <laughs> Uh, Can't do Leno and Letterman, man. I guess not. I, mean, you know, I was so innocent and naive. It's probably my, the last days of my genuine innocence. What? <laughs> okay, so now, with Shooter being so hard on the creative, uh, sometimes restrictions help you be more creative to try to work around it. Let's just say now this. Oh, absolutely. I sort of do I edit myself kind of thing. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I always I always try to make sense with what I do, I guess is the best way to say it. I try not to be too crazy. There are points. Um, well, for example, this, this non-existent X-Men book, which I have said, uh, because it's the what if Phoenix hadn't died storyline, and I said, obviously, a number, a lot of people are going to interpret that as a <laughs> to shooter. But I'm working very hard to make sure it doesn't read that way. You know, but if it if it does, in fact, become something real and runs for you know, 100 issues, there'd be no point at which you can say, oh, well, that's where something is known as a shooter. So, but I'm sure everyone will be able to read subtext. You know, oh, look, he's he's making fun of Claremont. No, it's just a guy with a beard walking down the street. You know, it's time. It was a funny thing, uh, parenthetically, when I did the Santa Claus issue of She-Hulk. Remember that? Nick St. Christopher. And Chris was convinced it was supposed to be him. It's Chris, no. No, it's Santa. Okay. You mentioned Stan and Jack. And uh, I just wondered what kind of influence those early Marvel books had on you. What, they, when were you, how old were you, and what did they do to your brain? Well, I was, um, I had actually read Fantastic Four number two in the barber shop. I read a coverless issue in the barber shop, waiting to get my brush cut. Um, and then the first one I bought was FF5, as anybody knows by now. And I would say, without hesitation, that I, as you know me, would not exist if not for that first three or four years of Marvel that I read, you know, the, the burgeoning days of Marvel. I mean, God in heaven, what a time. You know, I picked up Fantastic Four number five, and almost before I could turn around, there was the Avengers, the X-Men, you know, Thor, Spider-Man, boom, 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 all these first issues. I missed Amazing Fantasy 15. But I did get Spider-Man number one. And it was like a revelation because the the DC characters had been fine and I had fun with them and I enjoyed them. And then when Marvel came along, I suddenly realized how bland they were. You know, you know, Superman was always fighting bank robbers and you know, things like that. And the Fantastic Four were fighting Doctor Doom. I mean Doctor Doom was in Fantastic Four number five, my first issue. And it was also a time travel story, so right away I'm sucked right in, you know. 
Um, but yeah, that those those first years, I've got a whole bunch of uh, about forty pages of Jack's art from that period. I have it hanging in what I call the Kirby corner of my studio, KK Kirby corner. Um, and I sometimes will just stand there and go, wow, wow. I told this story yesterday, I think, about uh, Jim Warden, my art dealer, came to my house with his son who was celebrating his 13th birthday. And I pointed out to him that one of the pages I had was a page from Strange Tales Annual Number 2, which I bought on my 13th birthday. And I said, imagine if I could go back in time to my 13-year-old self and say, someday, you are gonna own a page from that book. And my 13-year-old self would say, but I own the whole thing. <laughs> I just paid a quarter for it. Yeah. I was wondering, what do you think of all the superhero films, and do you have a favorite, and what character would you like to see brought to life? I thought the first Iron Man movie was really good. Um, it actually eclipsed Superman will move it as my favorite superhero movie. Most of them, I think, suck. They're just so far off model, and they're all Mr. Director showing us his vision. And I just sit there saying, I'd, I'd actually rather see Stan Lee's vision, if you don't mind, you know, as he, or Steve Nicko's vision, as it was laid out originally. Although well, there, there have been moments. Um, I thought the, there was like a six minute trailer for Captain America, the first first Avenger. And I thought that was the best Captain America movie I've ever seen, that six minute trailer. They had to squint because you know they messed up the costumes. But then of course they had to have in the actual movie that USO scene where they mock the actual costume. And of course you know, Brian Singer gave us the yellow spandex line, thanks a lot. I brought this up yesterday I said, how many of you can name characters, superheroes who wear spandex? actually wear spandex. Maybe Spider-Man, because it's homemade. Christopher you know, Reeve wore spandex in the movie, but that's not what it is in the comic. You know, um, they don't. I mean, I've seen reviews where they, they, they have, like, it's obviously a multiple function key that automatically types spandex clad, and they use it to refer to Iron Man. You know? And I go, well, no, <laughs> not, it's not iron, I grant you, but it isn't spandex either, guys. Come on. And Superman's costume is made of this, and uh, you know, the Fantastic Four have their unstable molecules. And according to Chris, Professor Xavier bought a whole bunch of unstable molecule material to make the X-Men costumes. So, you know, nobody wears spandex. Now, I, I did cause a furor online a few years ago when I suggested that Luke's, Luke Cage's pants were spandex. For some reason, people got upset about that. You know. I'm guessing Thor doesn't wear spandex. Mm -hmm. uh, yes? Um, when you're assigned or when you take on uh, a book series or a character, how do you structure out story? Like, are you, are you led by the images you want to create? Or do you plot things out on cue cards? Like, how do you... Well, First of all, the way my head works, um, this non-existent X-Men book, I drew a splash page just as a test. And then I drew another splash page. And then because of the way my brain works, I had a whole issue in my head before I was anywhere. 
This is something Howard Mackey figured out years ago when he was my editor. He'd call up and say, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have any Iron Man stories, do you? And the next day I'd call him back and say, you son of a bitch. Now I've got three Iron Man stories in my head with nowhere to put them. Uh, and uh, Howard would tell other editors you know, how to do that. So the stories come pretty fast and pretty, pretty curious. And it's oh, 62 years of reading comics uh, creates this thing, this monster, this Cthulhu monster in my head that generates, uh, generates stories. Sir, Superman. Uh, yeah, uh, so when you were like uh, basically running the uh, the Namor series, mm. uh, like you know, where he's presented as like this corporate tycoon, mm -hmm. was that actually your idea or was that the, one of the editorial? No, that was how they presented it to me. Do, oh. you, want to, do you want to do Namor as a corporate car uh, tycoon? And I thought, well, that's cool. I mean, he's sort of been that, you know, since Stan and Jack brought him back. He's owned companies and done stuff like that. So that seemed like an interesting way to, to take him to a level we don't normally go to. And uh, it turned out to be a lot of fun. Well, it led to the, the art experimentation that you started playing with, you know, as you got into the series, the little crafting paper. Doer Shade? The Doer Shade? I was messing around with Doer Shade. I think I, that I first, was Namor the first place I used it? First place I remember seeing it. Yeah, but um, back, this was back before we had computer coloring and, and we were still, you know, the four color process. And so I was looking for ways to give tone and, depth and whatnot. Um, so, yeah. You. You've done extensive work in both companies, Marvel and DC. What yeah. did you find were the differences in how you approach those characters and the rules that you have to abide by? I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> when I left DC and I went back to Marvel, and I was doing West Coast Adventures. And I had an issue that opened with a scene of Hawkeye out on the practice range firing his, his arrows. And I drew him standing up firing his arrows. And I said, oh, come on. Raced it, put him on this whirly gig machine that's throwing him around and he's firing and still hitting bullseyes. And, and, I, and I said, that seemed more Marvel. And I, I mentioned that to Walt Simonson. And Walt said, that's what you should have been doing at DC. I said, yeah, there was a different mindset. The minute I stepped through the door at DC, everything went down a few hundred notches. You know, it was like, what well, Stan used to say, in Marvel Comics, people don't reach for the phone. They reach for the phone. Uh, and, uh, it's true, you know, you don't come in through a door, you're in through the door. Uh, so yeah, that was the biggest, the biggest difference, just this weird psychological DC is one of which I've often said, which, seriously now, set aside which characters are your favorites and all that, which universe would you want to live in? You know, because the DC universe has Superman, and the Marvel universe has Galactus. You know, so which universe would you want to live in? I think I'd want to live in the DC universe, because it's so much safer. <laughs> That was very important to me. Thank you for noticing. Um, 
when I was doing She-Hulk, I got a lot of letters from girlfriends of fans. And they, they, they would say, you know, my, my boyfriend reads She-Hulk and I look at it and what I really like is even though she's got gigantic boobs, they move like real gigantic boobs. <laughs> what, I, what I call the flow, you know, so they're not cannon mounted to her chest. <laughs> um, but also, I've only ever created uh, two female characters who were deliberately busty, and one was Aurora, and the other was Bethany in Next Men. The rest of them I try to draw, well, I give them different figures, the same way I give the, the male different figures. I think that's important, but uh, I don't like these cookie-cutter physiques. So along those lines, and She-Hulk, and I guess in every book you've done, um, how much studying of fashion do you do to sort of nail the right outfits? When I was doing um, Fantastic Four and uh, Avengers and Superman, blah, 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 I had a subscription to Vogue. So I could flip through and say, what are the ladies wearing or think they're wearing right now? And when I was playing with this X-Men thing, um, I sat down and looked at some current fashions because this is another book like like Hidden Years. That if it happened, it, it will be set in the past, but it will happen now. You know, so um, the, the tropes will be modern. So I was looking at modern fashions, thinking, well, you know, when they're in their street clothes, how will Kitty dress? How will Storm dress? And uh, that was one of the things that used to annoy me when I worked at Marvel in DC. I would kind of, not literally, but I feel like I was storming through the halls going, for Christ's sake, go buy a cosmopolitan. You know, come on. Women don't all dress like sluts. Resubscribe to Vogue now. That's when we'll know this X-Men book. Yeah, that's when you know it. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing an issue of uh, Fantastic Four where they they're on the beach or something, and there's Sue in this micro bikini with uh, a pierced navel. And I said, micro bikini and pierced navel is fine, but not Sue. No, Sue is an elegant lady. Dress her elegantly. Uh, maybe Kitty would have a micro bikini. She's 14, my case. So. But uh, yeah, I just kind of want to be aware of the real world. That was another thing that was appealing about early Marvel to me, was that it was very much recognizably the real world. I was reading those early issues of Fantastic Four, and they took place in New York. They didn't place, take place in Gotham or Metropolis or Central City. They were in New York. And I, I remember, I was kind of a naive kid, okay, but uh, I remember really thinking, is this just stuff that I'm not seeing on the news? You know, is this real? Especially when Stan and Jack did that you know, a day at the Marvel offices thing, you know, where Doctor Doom comes in and all that stuff. Um, it really convinced me that it was real. And I'll tell you something else, even though I use the phrase. A little part of me died the first time I heard the phrase Marvel Universe. Because I said, okay, they're saying it's not us. It's not our world. It's another world, a different world. And that was one of the most important sub-psychological things about Marvel, was that they played it as if it was 
the world outside your window. And, and suddenly that went away. And then you get you know, multiple universes and all that. And I say, well, who cares? Why do I care if the Fantastic Four get killed? Because there's a billion other Fantastic Fours who are exactly the same. So I am. That's just me being friendly. Uh, sir, the blue shirt. Is it blue? <laughs> when uh, DC relaunched Superman in, in 1986, and I, I still remember that first issue, you know, it's your first issue, Superman, it could be your last. Yeah. What were the conversations with you like as a creator before that relaunch about the renumbering and what they wanted out of you as a creator? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, when I went off contract at Marvel, uh, Dick Giordano called me immediately and said, okay, you know, you've been bitching about Superman for years. Put your money where your mouth is. And uh, let me add parenthetically that I wish I had said no. But I, I said yes. And then uh, got together with Dick and Jeanette and Paul Levitz and talked about stuff. And I came up with what I called my list of unreasonable demands. And it was about 20 points. And they accepted most of them. They said, yeah, you can do this. You know. Superman is once again the sole survivor of the doomed planet Krypton. That's kind of important, I think. Um, and and uh, I wanted to make Mon Pa Kent younger, so it was more reasonable that he was their kid. They didn't have to pretend they got him from their cousin in Milwaukee or something. Um, and just these, I, I wanted to emphasize that it is the man that is important, not the super. And I also wanted to make uh, Clark Kent more dynamic. My favorite Clark Kent is George Reeves. Uh, I've often said, you know, you watch that show, and Lois will come in and go, oh, Clark, go, something horrible is happening. And he'll just go, oh, get off my case, Lois, I'm working. And, and then she leaves me. And he was such a dynamic that means having two nanos. Uh, he was a very dynamic uh, Clark. He was no wimpy Clark. Um, although I, I've said many times, Christopher Reeve convinced me that that disguise works. That you can part your hair on the other side and slouch and wear a pair of glasses and look like a different guy. I mean, I'm sure you all remember the scene where he comes to Lois's apartment after Superman has flown her around, and he comes to Clark comes to take her out on a date, and he's standing there, and she's gone into the bedroom to change, and he looks at the bedroom door, and he kind of goes, and he takes off the glasses, and he stands up like another six inches, <laughs> and then she comes up and he puts the glasses back on, but he really convinced me that, that you could do it. If you sold it properly, you could do it. Um, so that was a lot of what I brought to it. And uh, I also wanted Lois to not be a bitch. She was, I, Margot Kidder made me understand why Superman would be smitten with Lois. Because up until then, I just thought, what is that? You know, I remember the Superman parody I did uh, in, in What the? Park Bench and Nosy Dame were their names. Um, and I also wanted Lana Lang to be a, a more important character.
short shirt uh, as of course when Superboy was created the character of the comic the Superman editorial office ignored it for like 10 years they, they just pretended the Superboy comic didn't exist so this whole thing was going on with Lana and if you were reading that independently you'd go well obviously he's going to grow up and marry Lana right but for years in Superman, obviously he's gonna marry Lois, right? And so you, when the first time they brought Lana into uh, a Superman story, she was this cold, hard, sort of vaguely Catherine Hepburn-like character. And, and I'm like, oh, she's, she's Lana Turner, guys, come on. Or, you know, Lana Turner with red hair. Um, so yeah, I wanted to get into the, the history and the background and build the characters from the ground up with a more, uh, well, I hate to use the word, but a more realistic approach. I can be realistic, but you know, uh, a guy in the fly. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers the question. I kind of rambled for a bit there. Sir? Oh, you did a fourth world uh, book? Yes. Oh, I, I think I'm not sure. I, the first time I ever read, uh, oh, was it New Gods, I guess, was the first one I, I ever read. My first time. Not, I had missed the first issue. So I started reading it with the second issue. And the second issue has that whole sequence. There came a time when the old gods died. I mean, I, I read that with this double page spread of Armageddon and all this kind of crap. I, I read that part of my friendship. Fuck, what was in the first issue? <laughs> Which I ultimately tracked down, but that stuff just blew me away. You know, I, that was one of those worlds that I just fell into and went, wow. And then how many, how, how many years later DC says, you want to do the new gods? We're going to do fourth world and we're going to put all those books together. And I go, oh, so I can do the new gods and the forever people and Mr. Miracle all in one book? I'm there. Present. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. And you know, Fourth World was a lot of fun. Wonder Woman was a lot of fun. I could have done a hundred issues of either one of those. But the editor told me one day that he was gonna be leaving DC. And I was very close to the end of my contract. And I said, oh God, I could re-sign for a year and end up with some Nazi as my new editor, you know. Do I want to do that? Do I want to risk being trapped for a year on these books that I love, but with some editor who doesn't get them, you know, whatever. So I, I left, I left both the books. And then the editor didn't leave DC. Oh. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But you know, it's one of those things that I almost feel like I would still be doing in the new gods today if that hadn't happened, because it was just so much. What? <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned that the characters of Alpha Flight didn't seem real to you because they yeah. weren't Stan and Jack characters. I'm just wondering if over the years if your opinions changed on that, and if so, uh, if you have any opinion on where the characters have or haven't gone since then. Well, I'll admit I haven't been crazy about where they've gone. Um, one of my least favorite moments is North Star outing himself by yelling, I am gay in the middle of the fight. <laughs> and of course, 
game puck or the game the Roger boxes like the back and they need pucks to six or four and it's kind of like wow you sat down and you figured everything you could possibly do wrong and then you did that <laughs> but ultimately I've had to train myself not to care you know, because when you let go you have to let go a somewhat recent example is what they did to Cassie Sandsmark in Wonder Woman once I left. And, and, you know, I, I've done this kind of all elbows and knees, you know, 14 year old girl, they turned her into Britney Spears. And that's because there's an awful lot of artists out there, sadly male, who can only draw Britney Spears. You know, they just, they, they can't understand. And there's an awful lot of fans who won't accept anything else. I got a lot of mail saying how ugly Cassie was. And I said, she's not ugly, she's ordinary. You guys are just used to seeing these you know, cookie cutter whatnots. Um, I forgot what the question was. Alpha Flight. Oh, just regarding Alpha Flight, just if your opinions oh, change. Oh, yeah, no, I, um, they weren't real. And they haven't become real. If they ever make an Alpha Flight movie, I'll be happy to take the money. I have a question about your early part of your career and uh, how you got started at Charlton. Yeah. How did I get started at Charlton? Yes. I had done a Raj 2000 strip for CPL Fancy, and Nick Cuddy, who was an editor and a writer at Charlton, saw it and liked it and asked me if I would not like to do it as a backup an email. And then they saw how fast I was and said, wow, you want to do a couple of real books? You want to do Space 1999? You know, you want to do Doomsday Plus One? <coughs> Let me um, pause for a moment. I want to apologize to all the ladies in the room. Seriously, I'm about to tell something really filthy and disgusting, but it's funny. Nick Cuddy told this story. It's N-I-C-C-U-T-I. Co-creator of email. Yeah, and when he was drafted, his parents, trying to be professional uh, army guy people, sent him mail addressed to Cutty Nicola, which was his full name, Cutty Nicola. So he said, first day mail call. The sergeant's handing out mail, and he picks this up and he looks at it. Who the fuck is Cutty Nicola? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything, trust me. I hadn't realized there was a kid there. Oh, I think of all my fans as being really old. Anyway, Nick tells that story, so I take no blame for it. But, uh, yes, somebody, somewhere, save me. Yes. How was your experience with Dark Horse and the lighting difference? Oh, um, oh, those two different things. They are kind of two different things. Um, Joe Duffy, writer at Marvel, summed up legend perfectly when she said it didn't take long for legend to become myth. Uh, it sort of crashed and burned pretty fast. Uh, the Dark Horse experience was, was mostly good. Um, the one thing I, I used to complain about was I said they had really great fixing damage. They could fix things that were wrong perfectly, brilliantly, overnight. But they couldn't actually stop things from going wrong. 
They, they didn't have damage control, they had damage, you know, correction. Uh, and that used to make me nuts. For example, my favorite, one of the next men paperbacks, trade paperbacks, is dedicated to Mark Grunewald, who had just died. And if you look at it, it's a small elliptical piece of paper that's been pasted in that says dedicated to Mark Grunewald. That's because what's actually printed on the page is dedicated to Mike Grunewald. And I, I, I saw the proofs of that and I said, you've got people working there who don't know who Mark Grunewald is? Oh my God. And also yeah. they spell Grunewald right, but not Mark. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they spell Mark with a C. Yeah, but uh, that's something kind of almost ironic, I guess, because Mark, Mark used to, his name was Mark, and he hated it when people called him, you know, Marcus or something like that. And yet he was the guy who every single name of the characters always got, when we were doing the handbook, they always got stretched out. Uh, so I had a character, um, Smart Alec, ALC. Uh, and in the handbook, it, it's, it's, his real name was Alexander. And I said, no, his real name was Alec. Like Alec Guinness, that's a name. That's an actual name. But, oh, I could go on about all these. Working in comics, it's a lot of fun. But it's also the death of a thousand cuts. <laughs> it's always little things. Hey, crazy. So, what are you gonna do, sir? In the era that you worked in, there's a lot of other legends that are in your caliber. Were there some contemporary that would work that you really respected? No, I thought they were all <laughs> Guy, I was doing a little mini interview on the Sci-Fi Channel with Walt, Walt Simonson, and the guy asked us if we were pals and whatnot. And we all said, no, we hate each other. But yeah, I mean, I used to be really good buddies with Frank Miller. I don't know what happened, but while we were both doing our stuff, while I was doing the FF and Alpha Flight, and he was doing uh, Daredevil, we'd be talking to each other the whole time, and being subversive, you know, in our own ways, and Walt and I are just great good buddies. I tell a story about uh, when I was just starting out, been in the business about a year, Walt and Weezy took me out to dinner, and I said at one point, you know, I'm gonna have to apologize for every stupid thing I'm gonna say, because I'm sitting here just trembling, because I'm having, I'm having dinner with Walt Simonson, and as it was then with Weezy Jones, and Weezy said, but we're having dinner with John Byrne. And that was, that's Weezy's mutant power. You know, she could just go, Vroom. when she was the editor on the Fantastic Four, on the X-Men. And Chris would piss me off, and I'd call her up and go, and she'd go, oh, but does it really matter? And I'd go, oh. <laughs> that's her mutant power. Among other other sort of legends and luminaries, you've written for like people think of you as a writer artist, uh, but you've written for some other big artists, Jim Aparo and yeah. John Major. Uh, I'm just curious, who was your who did you most like to write for? Oh well, yes, working with J.R. Junior was amazing. Uh, he is so good. God damn I like to break his hands. <laughs> Um, and I defined this, I defined the, 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 the John Romita Jr. moment when we were doing Iron Man together. And by the way, parenthetically, go and 
take a look at those issues because he told me that he hates Iron Man. Go and look at those issues and say, what would you have done if you loved Iron Man? <laughs> Holy crap. But there was a scene, ordinary scene, takes place in like the, the high council presidium of the Red Chinese government. They're all standing around talking about stuff. And as I wrote it, and I said, then the member steps into the room and starts doing something. And the way JR drew it was a giant Mandarin steps down through the ceiling. Uh, oh! It's like everything I, I asked for, he gave me 347% more. And it was astonishing. He's just so good. He's just so good. And it, unfortunately, it was not really fair to poor Paul Ryan, who, when JR left abruptly, Howard Mackey hired Paul Ryan. Paul is one of those solid, dependable artists, but not terribly innovative. So following JR, it was like it went And if he'd been following anybody else, it would have been fine. But he was following JR. I mean, let's also note Paul Ryan had to follow the great John Byrne, Fantastic Four, too. Well, he did. And he did it longer than I did. Yeah. Um, um, that's great spelled G-R-A-T. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stand for since your Captain America run. Thank you again for coming to Toronto. Okay, I've got to be somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, when I found out, I thought I got, I got to be here. And uh, I was in your lineup on Friday for your book signing. And you talked to a couple of folks. It was amazing to see the passion that so many people had. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that it was, you know, it was just you. Oh. Um, <laughs>
literally walks the shoes, the leather off the bottom of his shoes. So they went to a shoe repairman and the guy's working on the bills waiting. And the guy says, uh, you're from Canada, huh? And the girl says, yes. Yeah, I know. Yes, because they say you're in the boat and host. And he says, no, because they say the name in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> down to like the last three, four minutes, so let's uh, try to, something brilliant behind Mark, the, the lady there. Um, are you able to tell us anything about the nature and the origin of your interesting relationship with William Shatner and how that developed? Well, it turns out, I, I did this um, photo novel, the Star Trek photo novel series, and it turns out he saw it and he liked it, and he wanted to help promote it. He wanted to help promote it exactly the moment I was stopping doing it, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and he asked for this omnibus edition to be prepared so that he could sign it at cons. Uh, my understanding is he wants to sign it at cons even if I'm not there. <laughs> you know, when I'm in control shit, I'm signing myself. And, um, so okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. I was joking that that's the first comic book likeness of uh, Captain Kirk that William Shatner has ever approved of. <laughs> <laughs> Although, IDW sent me Paramount's list of approved likenesses, people who have signed off on their likenesses, and people who haven't. It was kind of a surprising list. And there were a number of people who wanted to see, whatever was done, they wanted to see it for approval. And I mentioned this to a friend of mine, Paul, uh, that they want to see everything. And he said, but it's photographs. You know, why would they? And I said, Paul, Mirrors don't work the same way in Hollywood as they do in the rest of the world, okay? They, they, they see something different. But, uh, so far, you know, with the 24 issues I did, I didn't have any answer. Uh, but it was very, very strange. Uh, I don't know how many of you followed the book, but um, there were a couple of background characters, like Mr. Leslie, who would be always the guy who was at the helm and Sulu wasn't there, you know, or he'd be an engineer. And he, over the years, he became a, a real character with a real name. Can't use him because he didn't sign off on the use of his likeness. And I said, God, he's in so many episodes. I could build a whole issue around Leslie, you know, the way I built a whole issue around Chekhov, which uh, Walter Koenig loved, Koenig loved, by the way. I thought that was great that he'd read it. And he said, oh, yes, that's true. You do a dramatic reading of this one. <laughs> That's what I forgot to ask Bill to do. Would you give me a dramatic read? You'd probably charge me $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me, he gave me a Denny yeah. And I owe I him Batman for, for the Denny Alright, one last question? One last brilliant question. A lot of pressure. down inside me, and I was always American. Um, I, I had no, uh, no problem with my Canadian background. I get kind of mad when people say, you're Canadian, right? And I say, lapsed. <laughs> that line plays way better when you do it in New York, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. My father had a friend who was American, and uh, he used to like give me American flags and American stamps and stuff, and it sort of poisoned my mind. Um, I didn't vote for Trump. 